Welcome to the HR Think Tank, our podcast that uncovers the power a trusted workforce has on team performance, culture, and morale. We gather insights from experts, business leaders, and HR professionals to help you lead your team more effectively. Here's your host, Kai No, CEO of Verify Now, a trusted provider of background screening services. Being a good leader is often more about the good that you can find in others than it is about bolstering yourself. In this episode, we talk about the lessons business leaders can learn from winning sports coaches. Our guest today is Paul Ruse, the founder and director of Performance by Design and one of Australia's most respected AFL players and coaches of all time. Like many Aussies, I feel a personal connection to Paul as I remember vividly the moment that the Sydney Swans won the premiership in 2005 under his coaching. I was only in high school, but it was the first time that Sydney had won the AFL, so very hard to forget. I really admire Paul's approach to leadership and I can't wait to share his insight on our podcast. Welcome to the show, Ruzi. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me. Thanks, and thanks for joining us from overseas and, and making time for us. So, Ruzi, can you talk about your leadership journey and when you reflect on it, what has been some of your biggest lessons? Yeah, I, I sort of tend to go way back now. When I first went down to Fitzroy, I probably didn't realise, well, I didn't realise what sort of leadership and culture and all those sort of things were. When you're a 16-year-old kid and you get invited down to a, a then VFL footy club, you're just excited and you go down and you're not sure how long you're going to last. But probably when I became captain in the early 20s, I realized how lucky I was and, and realized, the, you know, your role model leaders are going to drive you where their actions take you. You know, so if their actions are good and their behaviors are good, typically you're going to end up in a pretty good place. You know, if your actions, their, their actions of your leaders aren't really good, you're still going to follow them, you know. So I was really fortunate. The leaders of Fitzroy were, were really good guys, you know, on the field, off the field. And I was just, you know, a young kid and just wanted to be, you know, with them. You know, I wanted to be part of that group. So you tend to, I talk about acting your way in or acting your way out. I wanted to act my way in the Fitzroy group. And so that was probably the, the first lesson. I think, you know, you're picking up lessons as you go through. I think probably the next thing I really remember is when I took the job at Sydney, I sort of thought, you can leave culture to chance, you know, and, and typically it works okay. If you get good people, you know, you're going to have a reasonable culture. But I remember thinking to myself, how do you not leave culture to chance and how do I get the players more involved in defining what their football club is, you know, and, and then we went on to, to do what we did. So they're probably the two main things I remember out of my journey amongst, yeah, literally thousands of lessons. Yeah, and, and growing up was leadership – because, you know, you, you talked about your 20s when you were in the VFL, but, you know, in the early stages, your formative years in high school, was was leadership something that you were actively considering? Like, were people tapping you on the shoulder? Were people saying, Ruzi, mate, you, you're just a natural fit? Not necessarily. I, I think when you're a kid, you again, you, you're learning lessons all the time, but you're not really understanding what they are, you know. And when I grew up in the, you know, 70s and you know late 60s and early and 70s sort of thing as a kid you know you played all sports you know basketball tennis football I didn't play competitive cricket but we play in the driveway yeah you'd try everything at PE at school you know lacrosse and you know hockey field hockey and tunnel ball and softball and baseball and and everything sort of thing so as a kid it was really Back then, we were really fortunate. It was just about activity. There was no homework. You didn't. There was no such thing as homework. So you just you just play as much sport. And I think again, when I reflect, you're probably learning more lessons from your coaches and your teachers and your parents and their their peers rather than are you a natural leader. I think I think I was more just picking up things that I didn't realise. Was I a natural leader? 
Probably not. I was just a good player. I was pretty talented as a kid in in most things that I did, but I I, I just set out to have fun, really. So main, mainly the lessons I learned when I look back, I, as I said, are from those really influential people in my life that I really took a lot of their you know a lot of the lessons from them. Under your leadership at the Sydney Swans, uh, they won the premiership of the AFL for the first time in seventy two years. Um, what was your experience? You know, learning from from the wins, um, and and I know the follow up year in two thousand six, you guys were also in the final. What did you learn from not winning the final? Probably, firstly, two thousand five. You you realise it's such a culmination of so many people. You know, I think that's the biggest thing. It's not just about the coach or the captain or the star player. You know, when we won it in two thousand five, it was about the processes we'd put in place for the three years that I'd been coach but also the foundations you know Rodney Ede was the coach before me he built some foundations you know Paul Kelly and Andrew Dunkley and Darren Creswell who weren't there and Tony Lockett came and you know Ron Joseph and Richard Collis were still there but I think that's the biggest thing you know no one can do it alone and you've got to you know trust people you've got to build trust and then once you put your systems in place you got to be really consistent with those you know the consistency and the monotony of being great you know there's a there's certain monotony around it and and consistency around what you have to do so i think as i you know as we as the final siren went and i went down the ground and you know you look at so many people that are impacted and so many people that have contributed to the victory that that was probably the biggest thing losing 2006 i i sort of remember as well and you know we lost which was really disappointing and i remember my mum was trying to get in the rooms and i sort of saw her as i was coming down the race race so i let her I, I got her in the rooms. You know, I don't know. I'm the, same, I'm the same person as I was last year, and it puts it into perspective. And, and I think in, in a certain way, after 05, a lot of pe- people respected us, no question. But a lot of people said, oh, you were lucky. You didn't have a lot of injuries. Everything went well for you. I actually think we got credibility when we went back-to-back. So to get back-to-back grand finals is really difficult. And to lose by, you know, such a small margin, I think – it really legitimised 05 when people said, nah, they weren't lucky. They were a really good team, you know. So, again, it was just about the systems and about the process. And really, at the end of the day, four points one year, one point the next year, two really good teams playing. But, again, probably the lesson was really you're the same person whether you win or the same person whether you lose. Yeah, it's just whether you whether you're true to yourself, how do you, how do you react in victory and how do you react in failure. I think they're really real tests of everyone, really. I agree. Well, f- for me, I-, I watched a lot of sports growing up. So I, I, you know, I would flick between the seasons between cricket, AFL, uh, NRL, and occasionally the Wallabies when we played. I-, I was just a fan of, you know, Australian teams and watching the winning mentality, you know, uh, the ups and downs of sports. So I, I think going back to back definitely brought it out to a lot of my peers. I grew up in southwestern Sydney and AFL was not a big thing, you know, but leading up to it, there was a lot of hype about it. And look at it now, Sydney's got two teams, you know, so that's um, it, it created, I guess, the, the space for AFL to grow. You talked about systems, you know, being an important part of, of success. And earlier when we were chatting, you had mentioned this quote from, I think, James Clear from the book Atomic Habits. You talked about, you never rise to your goals, you fall to your systems. Can you tell us a little bit more about this quote and, and what it means to you? Yeah, 100%. Uh, I think people often get caught up in long-term goals. And they, they do have a, a role to play on. Because so, you, you need to know where you've got to get to. 
But my experience tells me you've got to break it down. What's the process in order to get there? And when I heard that quote, read that quote, you know, you don't rise to your goals, you fall to your systems. You know, in 40 years of footy and, and 12 years of coaching and, and work, working with North Melbourne in the last couple of years, it's absolutely true. You know, you can have as loftier goals as you want, you know, and, and obviously winning a premiership is the goal of, of AFL. But unless you get your systems right, you're never going to win. You know, unless you've got an incredibly, incredibly talented team. And I talk about talent based teams and behavioral based teams. You know, the behavioral based teams have the great systems in place, you know, and again, they're monotonous and you just go over them over and over again. And you obviously tweak them and you move them around and you, you look at what opposition are doing, et cetera, et cetera. But you have to have processes and systems in place. Accountability, what are the actions, reward, challenge around your behaviors, KPIs, technical KPIs around, you know, particularly from my point of view from football, what makes a good game? You know, oh, we, 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 we won because we kicked more goals. No, no, no. Why did you kick more goals? You know, what are the, what are the things that allow you? And I think the great coaches in world sport can break the games down really practically and, and say to their players, this is what we do and have really re- good systems in place, systems of review, preview and going over things. We do, we don't do this. We do that. We don't do this. We do that. And we just do it consistently over and over again. And I think James Clear is absolutely right. You, you don't rise to your goals because everyone can have lofty goals and we can all say we want to win a premiership. But unless you get your systems right, you know, again, unless you've got an incredibly talented team, you, know, you can still win it, but it's really hard to be successful over a long period of time without really, really consistent and good systems in place and processes. That's a fair point. And I think that, that you know, it certainly is super relevant in business as well because those systems and processes allow a business not only to scale but to be sustainable. You know, it can, it can deliver on those same outcomes year in, year out. Otherwise, it's, you know, up and down. Uh, and, and talking about business, so after your illustrious career playing and coaching in the AFL, is there anything that you've learned outside of, you know, uh, the AFL, particularly from the world of business, that you feel has application back into, into the world of sport? Well, I think one of the great things about being involved in sport is the network that you have, you know, and I was really lucky while I was playing and coaching because, yeah, for instance, Jeff Pilates, who was a mentor of mine and unfortunately passed away a number of years ago, was at the time was the CEO of Ford. He was taking notes for me in the box. Like, it's just amazing. Yeah, Basil Sellers, who's a, a great entrepreneur and done fantastic in business, is still a, a great mate of mine. Yeah, so one of the really fortunate things when you're in a sporting environment, you you get to speak to some of the great, you know, business minds. And and that I, I I always say this, you know, the more people you can meet, the more people you can learn from, the more things you can observe. So to have that caliber of of people around your footy club and talking to you and and just little tidbits every now and then, picking things up is, is incredible. Um, so absolute crossover, but those people, and even as I said, even going back to my junior footy days like and junior basketball days, I can guarantee I would have re-quoted some of my junior football coaches and basketball coaches and teachers, et cetera, et cetera. I think, I think the smartest people are the ones that have got great self-awareness. And no, no leader knows everything. You know, I think the ability to keep – you know, self-awareness, keep understanding what you're good at, what you're not good at, and keep absorbing as much information as you possibly can. So probably more general answer to say, yeah, I took a lot of stuff at a lot of those people, you know, because there's, there's great crossover, but taking advantage of, of your network and, and learning, never, never close, never, 
never miss an opportunity to learn something. Yeah, no, great, great words. And so just touching on, I guess, your transition um, away from sport and into business, were there any key lessons or learnings that you took with you from sport that you applied to business? Like what, what were some of those things that worked particularly well for you? Yeah, I think I was really fortunate to be in, in footy and I really look back on that. I mean, the, the really basic, simple concepts, particularly around team, you know, like understanding your role within the team. And if I look at 2005 as an example, winning the premiership, we probably would have been talent-wise, you know, five to eight in terms of pure talent. But, you know, the ability to work together as a team and we often say this in workshops, you know, because when you when we work with executive teams at Performance by Design, you know, you got the head of marketing, head of IT, you know, head of sales, head of production, whatever it might be. And, and often we'll be 30 minutes into a workshop and we'll stop it and we say, do you really see yourselves as a team? And you can tell that it's a bit of a moment for them because they're all battling for their silo. So they, when we talk about it, you've got to take your marketing hat on, off. This is the team now. This is our executive team. We're trying to sell a car or we're trying to sell a wheelbarrow or trying to, you know, <clears throat> lend money or whatever it might be. We are all in this together. So even some of those more basic concepts from sport, the discipline, you know, doing things when people aren't watching you, you know, preparing yourself, the, as, as, I, as I said before, just that ability to hold each other accountable, you know, have honest conversations, be really clear on where you want to get to, role clarity, yeah, you know, I remember when I went from Sydney to Melbourne when I was coaching Melbourne and Shannon Burns, I was lucky to coach. He was at Melbourne Footy Club, but he'd come from Geelong. And I said to Burns, he just one day said, come into my office and sat down. I said, mate, what's the biggest difference you see from the Geelong Footy Club to the Melbourne Footy Club? And he said, Rusey, every time we went out at Geelong, we knew exactly what our role was. There's no role clarity here at Melbourne. And it was exactly the same at Sydney. Every player at Sydney knew exactly what they had to do. So, so many things from sport that, you know, we, we now teach to business. But and a lot of the concepts people know. It's not like it's foreign to them. But probably like anything, when you get an external consultant in, it's just, oh, geez, we've, we've forgotten that. Yeah, no, we need to get back to team or we need to get back to a bit more accountability or building relationships or whatever it might be. We're just there to remind people the things that they know but when they get caught up in the day-to-day business, they tend to yeah, forget sometimes. Right. I think I think you you know your team comes in, gives it airtime, creates those you know those practice sessions if you want to call it that training, and then hopefully the the businesses can implement it as a system or a process where it's repeatable, you know, and it becomes part of the culture. Um, so I want to talk next because. I think this is a key point to the success and, and you've mentioned it already. You talked about accountability, you know, being a key success in both football and business. Uh, and I want to refer to this article that you had written in uh, on the Fordham um, company website. You wrote, I want to make this clear. High-performing sporting teams and businesses must have a high level of accountability and it is not accountability just so we can have extra work or annoy all of our staff. Can you please, you know, expand on this point uh, about accountability what are some of the key considerations for a leader who's either reviewing or setting up an accountability model in their organization? How should they approach it? Yeah, look, the first thing is to, have to find a framework. So again, yeah, what is your culture code? What, what are your behaviors and what are your values? And I think too often companies and also footy clubs as well, they have them written on the wall, but they don't live them and breathe them, right? So when we set it up, we set up our what we call performance by on our culture code. What are we really clear on? And we try and get below the value system. So, you know, we want to be honest, trustworthy, 
Passion. What does that really mean? What's the action below that? Honesty. We want to tell the truth. All right, deliver on our word, whatever, whatever it might be. They're actionable. You can. We talk about can you see that behavior? So then once we set up our culture code, all right, we build really strong relationships with each other. You know, and, and that's probably in recent times in footy, it's been really about coaches and players building relationships together. We do a lot of profiling as well, the performance by design, understanding yourself and understanding others, but more in the context of the team. You know, what is the team? What are, what's the makeup of the executive team? What's the makeup of the marketing team or whatever? All right, and then at the end of it, once we've established a really clear process, then we start to deliver feedback, all right? Then we start to say, well, based on our culture code, based on you know, how you want to receive feedback, based on the relationships we've now established in this organisation, we're now going to hold each other accountable to what we've set ourselves. If we want to deliver on our word, we've got to be held accountable to that. If we want to tell the truth, we've got to be held accountable to that. If we want to know our role or play our role, we've got to be held accountable to that. And and football is tremendous is a tremendously accountable business. There's no question. Yeah. Yeah, okay. The, the great tips, I mean, really relevant for us, uh, for Verify now as a business, because we've, we've, um, I guess legally separated from the company we were established under. And now we're going through the phase of, you know, really creating our own identity because our identity was always part of the bigger brand. Um, so those are really uh, amazing tips. So I, I just want to follow up, you know, you wrote a book in 2017 called Here It Is. And, and in that book, you list 25 tips about footy leadership, uh, you know, that you penned towards the end of your playing days. Of those 25 tips, which have been the most useful moving into the business sphere? Yeah, so to put that into concept, so I, I retired in 1998 and footy changed from a part-time sort of semi-professional environment about the mid-90s. So the start of my career was part-time, the end of my career was full-time. So to be fair to my senior coaches that I had most of the time, <coughs> they didn't have time to build relationships and do the things. The landscape was changing from a leadership point of view. So I sat down at my desk at the end of 1998 and I wrote down the things I liked about my leaders and the things I didn't like about my leaders. And it's an exercise we challenge people to do with performance by design. And, and it really comes back to are you the leader you wish you had? Right, so I'll say that again. Are you the leader you wish you had? So the 25 points were really written through the eyes of a player. What were my expectations of my coaches? What did I want from them? You know, what were the things that – and a lot of the things that I asked for were, were you know, some things around positivity. You know, give me some positive feedback rather than just always negative feedback. And since I've been working with performance by design, I've read some studies at Harvard studies that talks about four-to-one positive negative feedback. Be really specific with your feedback. You know, again, don't fly off the handle after a game. If you've, if you've got nothing to say – don't say anything. I've seen relationships destroyed after games of football. Same in business. High-powered sales meeting or we've lost the sale or, or something's happened or we, we were going to get bought by a company. We're now don't say something in that moment that you wish you could take back because right? it's really hard to take it back. So most of the things that I wrote down are still really relevant. But the most important thing, that was my leadership audit. When I started at Sydney, I took it out put it in my desk for eight and a half years, took it out of the Melbourne Footy Club for three years. That whole held me accountable to the leader that I wanted to be. So really it's more about you as a leader listening, okay? Are you the leader you wish you had? What were the things you admired about your leaders? What were the things that you didn't like? And I guarantee if you're honest, you're probably doing some things now that you said you didn't like, all right? Because habits are really hard to break and you've never written, written down your leadership doctrine. You know, what do you want to represent? What's your leader? 
that you want to be. So do the exercise. I encourage everyone to listening to do their, do their own exercise. Write down the things they liked about their leaders, things they didn't like about them. But write it through the eyes of that young person coming into that business. When you first started in the corporate world, as you're going up the corporate ladder, what were the things you liked? What were the things you didn't like? Don't write it through the eyes of the CEO now or a sales manager now because write it through the eyes of someone that wants something from the leader. What, what do they want from you? Not what do you want to give them, what are they asking from you? It's a really different perspective. Yeah, And I think that's a really good approach because when you're entering the workforce, like intuitively, you know when something's right and something's not right. Right. And, and, and I guess the longer you tow a line that's against your own values, I mean, you almost accept bad behavior because you're like, Oh, well, no, nah, that's, that's normal in this company. Well, if you don't accept it, I mean, you've got to figure out a way of those 25 tips. Are there any that you've changed your mind on any, any modifications you would make for, for now? Like I, in today's I mean, world? It's probably more that they were mine at the time. Like I didn't. I never used them verbatim. Like I never sort of checked myself off at the end of the 25 and said, oh, I've only used 23 or only – and some of them were pretty footy specific, you know, because I was going into coaching environment. Yeah, not using the interchange bench, that was that's sort of irrelevant by the time I finished my coaching career. But as a general philosophy, it's actually really interesting when I look back on them and, and I look at them more as an empathetic, authentic leader. You know, that that's – if I had to frame what they were – be empathic and be authentic, you know, the, the type of person you want to be and be positive. Most people do most of the things right most of the time, you know, and in a footy environment that I was in, to be fair, in the early 80s, it was pretty brutal. But we didn't have a lot of time. You know, Wolsey was a school teacher, Parker was a lecturer, great coaches, but pretty much got down there and, you know, we had players who would arrive at quarter to five and get out on the track. We trained from five. We'd finish at 8, 8.30, jump in the car and go home. So it wasn't about building relationships and all that sort of stuff for coaches. It's just basically it was I tell, I tell, I tell. As I said, the landscape changed dramatically. So then it was about collectively how we're going to build something together. Because I think, I think a lot of the, the tips that you give are timeless. You know, I, I just want to point out three. My, my three favourite that I follow regularly, um, one is always remember to enjoy what you're doing. Yeah. Right. That that for me is number one. That for me is a big motivator. And even on our company tenants, we have that. Have fun. Yeah. Right. You know. Yeah. Um, team bonding and camaraderie is important for a winning team. I'm big on that. I, I like to know uh, the full version of people, not just the work version of you. You know, uh, like you said, authentic leadership, but also an authentic representation uh, of people. And then last one is be prepared to listen to advice from advisors. Yeah. Yeah, and I think I think in in any sort of leadership role, like you said earlier, one person doesn't know it all. You've got to be open to advice and and applying, you know, when it makes sense. So those three tips, uh, I hope I hope you're right. If if we shared some of those tips uh, on 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 the podcast and on the blog, I think the last one in particular, mate, is so important. Like the the, the best leaders we deal with now are, are so self aware and they understand that they don't know everything. The worst leaders, ego. You know, no, I'm not going to listen to him. You know, I know everything. No one knows everything. And I think you're right. Like, and, and it's thanks for sharing them specifically because it gives people an idea. They're not, it's not rocket science. Yeah. You know, the other ones are, you know, treat people the way you want to be treated yourself. Like, again, a simple philosophy, but we really forget it when we get in a position of power. You know, and particularly in the last couple of years, we've seen some horrible leadership, you know. So I think it's great. And those, those three were really relevant throughout the career, 100%. 
Because I think when you get caught up in the daily grind and you're just doing things and you don't reflect on what you've done, why you've done it, how you've done it, um, I think you can lose people because, you know, in this podcast, we talk a lot about uh, retention of, of, you know, high performing or key staff. And, and, you know, every advice that we've had from our guests on the show has been to say, be self-aware, um, but also, you know, be, be open, let people bring in advice. Good advice can come to you. You know, um, I, I want to move on now to your work with performance by design. So you, you know, you established this company. Can you share with us some of your work, like the work that you do with companies? Cause I know you work across multiple sectors. You know, you work with very large businesses, you work with government agencies, but you also work with some amazing SMEs. So can you share with us some of your work, some of the highlights, um, that you've, you've had throughout your time with performance by design? Yeah, look, I've really enjoyed it. You know, I was, I was fortunate as well because I played in an era where you worked as well. So I think that was great. So when I was, when I was playing at Fitzroy, you know, I always worked. So, the, you know, the ability to learn from, you know, some of my bosses, some of my peers and all that sort of stuff. So it was good to be able to transition back into the workforce in a sense. But I think the good thing, as you said, the, the good thing about performance by design, we work in all sectors, you know, but the common theme is probably the, the leaders, you know, the, the role model leaders, you know, they're the ones when we set a framework or often they've set a framework and we're just taking it and reinforcing what their framework is, going through, you know, profiling, going through relationship building, going through some some conversations, real talk, and then also you know, systemizing some of the things we do. There's no question that the common themes are the best leaders are the ones that want to get better, you know, want to bring their teams together. The most difficult ones to deal with are the ones that have got egos, you know, oh, this is not for me, this is... Yeah, this, this doesn't apply to me. If you want someone to do something, do it yourself. If you want to be an honest business, you have to be honest as the CEO. Yeah, if you want to be trustworthy, people have to trust the CEO. So that, that's probably the common theme. And, and again, it's similar, really similar in footy. You know, who do you trust to play with, you know? And generally, Rusey, when do companies approach you for work? Uh, is it is it when they're going through leadership transition? Is it when they're going through crisis? Is it when they're going through scale up? Like generally, when do people ask for your help? Again, it's really varied. I'll probably answer it differently. The, the, the ones, I enjoy working with all companies, but the ones that are probably more enjoyable are, are when they're at a stage where they're sort of a five, six, seven out of 10 in terms of culture, but they're worried that their culture's sort of just starting to deteriorate. Really good self-awareness again and saying, no, nah, we're at a good stage. The harder ones is when they're probably recognised at that point but they've let it go and then suddenly they've become a three out of ten and then we come in and we have to get them back up to where they were. You know, So if we can work with those companies when they are just that good to great, you know, we, we, we know we're a pretty good team, we're, you know, we're okay at our behaviours and, you know, values we probably don't know each other that well, particularly coming out of COVID. I mean, COVID has separated everyone. So there's a really big push to get everyone back together and build, rebuild those relationships. You know, as I said, like reaffirm what we stand for, what's our purpose, what's our values, what our behaviours, what do we stand for as an organisation. I think there's a real opportunity moving forward. And you touched on it before. People want purpose. They want to come to work for a reason. You know, at the moment we're potentially – you know, this great reset they're talking about worldwide, people moving jobs, et cetera, et cetera. I think if you can give people a really clear purpose around what you stand for as an organisation, build really strong relationships, as you said, have really honest conversations, people are going to say, this is the company I want to work for. I'm not going to change, you know, 
I'm not going to change companies. I really, when my alarm goes off in the morning, I love getting out of bed. I love coming into work. And, and that was such a good part of being involved in sport, you know, because, you know, even at Melbourne, there wasn't a day where the alarm went off and I'd go, okay, we've had a couple of losses, but great people. We've got a purpose. We know where we're heading. Yeah, let's get into work and let's put the helmet on. Let's let's put the head down and bum up. Let's keep going. That's certainly, you know, super relevant to us at the moment because, you know, we, we, we set up Verify now only three years ago and I've got really aspirational goals. But just hearing you talk about role clarity and also being really clear and intentional and, and, and sharing what our goals are, you just – you know, it's just reminding me, I need, I need to do some work on that because we can go further. We're growing our team at the moment. And I think that's relevant for everyone, right? Is you get lost in the day to day. And now with COVID working from home more and more, you get caught up in your own little bubble and you forget what your contribution is to the bigger picture. And so when we have these all hand meetings or town hall meetings or, you know, whatever meetings people call them, it's, it's sort of realigning, you know, your, your own work with where the company's going. So, that's that's really great advice. I've got one last I question. I think I'll yeah. just jump in there. I think the other thing is, and I talk about this a lot, I would never take a coaching job without getting external consultant in. And I talk about it like this. It's like watching your kids grow. And you touched on it there, mate. It's like if you're in the business, sometimes you can't see the things that are going really well and the things that aren't going so well. So it's not always the things that aren't going well. When an external consultant comes in, we have a fresh set of eyes. It's like watching your kids grow. Yeah, someone walks up to you and goes, geez, Dylan's got bigger. You go, because you see them every day. You actually can't, you can't see the growth. And it's the same in business. I would always recommend anyone, any CEO, any business leader, get an external consultant come in because they have a fresh set of eyes. And they'll also hold you accountable as well, not just your staff. And that was a good thing about having this external consultant in Sydney and Melbourne. I had to be held accountable too. There were times where the guys would say to me, Rusey, that was, you know, that was a poor meeting or the way you handle the players after the game wasn't. So we all need to be held accountable. But also, well done, mate. You've done so many good things. Oh, shit, really? Yeah. Last time we came in, look at, the, look, at the, look at the stuff we wrote on the wall. Have a look at the stuff we've written on the wall this time. Jeez, we have come a long way. We are getting better. So there's a really important part of that as well. Yeah, we've got to, got to celebrate the wins and got to acknowledge where you're at. I mean, my, uh, my, my, my managing director for, for the other company, he used to always say to me, Kai, we're not as bad as we are and we're not also not as great as we think we are. You know, we're somewhere in between there, but it, it takes a little bit of external perspective for that. Uh, so one last question around this accountability and, and then we'll move on to uh, a different sphere, uh, a different aspect of, of Ruzi. So this last question is just around Teams in crisis or underperforming, right? And they've got work to do in their culture. How does that differ from a team that's just, you know, humming along, like you said, at about that seven or eight mark out of 10? How, how does culture building differ for teams in crisis or, or that are radically underperforming? Yeah, well, I mean, Sydney versus Melbourne is probably the good example. You know, when, when, when I took over at Sydney, yeah, we were under rocket. We'd made the grand final in 96, um, played in final. So we we're probably a six, six and a half. We got to a 10. I went to Melbourne, you know, they, they'd lost 20 games a year before. They had six years of losing. It's the same system. It's just where you start and, and probably the first six months becomes really important to understand exactly, you know, where the staff are at. You know, we talked about some of it. Are they really strong in relationships? Are they really clear on their behaviours? Are they really clear on their technical KPIs? Are they playing their role? Are they clear on their role? Uh, so because I'd done the Sydney coaching, I was able to coach Melbourne. A, a, a young coach, a young CEO coming into a, 
you know, one, two, or three out of ten, it's really difficult. Because if you never, I talk about it, like if you haven't climbed Mount Everest, it's really hard to know where to go. You know, where where do I go? So having done the Sydney thing, I knew, you know, we had to, we just had to do more work with our leaders. You know, we had, to, we had, we had two meetings at, at Melbourne, one with the whole team, and then one with the leaders. Because the important thing, as I said, if we can't get our leaders to you know, stand by our culture code and what it is, it's really hard for everyone else to do it. So you have to start with that group. We need our executive team living and breathing our values and our behaviours. Once we get that set, people will watch us, we'll role model that behaviour, and then we can start getting into the next layer of it. We have to start with that group though. So in 2008, you were named Australian Father of the Year in recognition of your ability to balance the needs of your family and the responsibilities of managing a high-profile sports team. Do you have any advice for busy leaders juggling career and family responsibilities? Yeah, well, it's funny. I hear this term, uh, work-life balance. I think it's a strange term because I just call it life balance. You know, And what we did, and I can only talk about my family, is you know, even though the boys were young when I took the Swans job, we discussed it as a family. You know, is this what we want to do? And then, you know, we became a really family-orientated club at Sydney. And I think, you know, the more you can integrate your work and your home, then it becomes life balance. You know, well, I, I lived in um, eastern suburbs. We, tr- we trained at the SCG. There were times where I'd just say for lunch, um, guys, I'm heading out to lunch. Boys have got a, um, a little bit of an athletic carnival down at Wallara. You know, so it's just whatever your life looks like, again, I – when I went to work as a Sydney Swans coach, I still had a wife and two kids. You know, when I went home, I was still I was still the Sydney Swans coach. So this idea of work life balance, it's just it's it doesn't make sense to me. It's how is our life? Is our life balanced? And I think the other little tip that I would always give: don't wait for the big moments. Don't wait for the holiday. If you're a really busy CEO or business leader or run a company. Don't wait for the holiday to Aspen or the holiday to Disneyland and think that's enough. Little and often, you know, read the bedtime story, go to, go to coffee with your wife, go drop the kids off to school, even if it's once a week. You know, get home, get home a little bit early if you've got an opportunity. So don't, don't miss those little and often opportunities. I think that's what I was able to do really well. Taking as, you know, my, my son talks about it, which is really powerful. He's, and, you know, he now mentors young, young boys in his Prince the King program and he talks about it. He said, I remember Dad when he coached West, Western Australia, coached in Perth. He'd always get the midnight flight back. That wasn't a big deal to me. You know, midnight flight back, get back on a Sunday morning, go and watch my kids play footy. That, that's not a sacrifice. That's just getting a plane, sleeping on the plane. So make, making those choices within your life is, is becomes really important to that balance. Yeah, that's that's really sound advice. I mean, I'm I've got a toddler, I've got a three year old, and um, you know, in in 2019 before we had um, Franklin, I asked my friends, you know, give me some advice because I grew up with a single mum, so I, you know, I, I don't really have that role model. And uh, my friend, who's the CEO of a large company, he said, Kai, mate, you're the dad. They're gonna love you. You just need to be there. You you don't need to do all these grand things. He said, you just need to be there. You'll be okay. And I'm like, I'm like, are you sure that's enough? Are you sure that's enough? Um, I, I like talking about this because I think the flexibility of work has really encouraged people to to blend those aspects. Because I think traditionally people used to leave work at work and home at home, and so there was two different versions of Kai. There's a work Kai and there's a home Kai. But how I've seen my life play out is 
who I am at work is generally who I am at home. And, you know, uh, I think I think we talked about this in, in our briefing, but like our company does psychometric assessments and we use this product called Lumina and it talks about the three different personas, you know, the underlying, the everyday and the overextended. And I often talk to my team about making sure that the, the, there is overlap between your underlying and everyday. Because if they are radically different, you are expending just way too much energy and, and there's no good values alignment between your work and who you are as a person. And then you're going to figure out in three months' time, why am I doing this job, right? So in our side, on, on our side, we always promote that work-life, uh, I call it work-life balance, but really um, it's, you're right, it, it is just life. You're just living it. Yeah, and I love we had a really good conversation about the profile. I love the profiling and, and you're right, like the energy – to be who you're not at work is exhausting, you know, and, and, and there's so many studies, particularly in the last couple of years, the more authentic leaders and the more authentic companies have become so much more successful because they just are who they are and they talk about the brutal truth. This is what's happening. You know, this is these are the facts. This is what's going on. This is what we control. This is what we can't control. So, yeah, we had a, we had a great conversation. I 100% agree with that. Um, you know, at who you are at home should be who you are at work. Your personal brand is really important. Your personal values, if they're dramatically different to when you go to work, it becomes really, really difficult. You'll get frustrated. People at work will get frustrated because eventually they'll see through who you are and, and they'll look behind that. So, you know, very few people that are successful and happy and balanced are dramatically different, I believe, at home than they are at work because it's just too hard to do that consistently. I agree. We only have so much energy throughout the day and, you know, you're constantly resolving problems or, or capitalising on new opportunities. If you're trying to manage your own uh, different personas and they're radically different, like person A or person B, I mean, good luck to you. Uh, that's, that's my opinion. But I think I just want to take your comment on this. So, you know, work from home has, has been thrusted upon us due, due to the pandemic and when we talk to people, they're saying that they're, they're finding it hard separating work and, and life because you're working from home. It's the same environment. The, the time zones aren't quite the same because the time just ticks over. You start earlier, you finish later. I mean, what, what comments do you have um, to leaders out there trying to get that balance right and trying to encourage people to be productive but also live their lives? Yeah, look, I mean, I've always had this view, if you want to be a high-performing team, you know, what does that look like? I mean, I, I was a sales rep for a while. You know, I worked for a company called Active Leisure. I was never in the office as a sales rep, you know. But I think what's been obscured over the last couple of years is, oh, I just don't like the traffic on a Monday going to work, so I'm going to stay home. That, that's, that's not a high-performing team. Let's, let's be brutally honest. So I don't, have a, I don't have a massive view either way. I mean, you and I spoke about this a bit. All I said was, if you were, yeah, if you were um, supporting the Sydney Swans Footy Club, and John Longmire, yeah, had the forwards training at Wollongong, the backs training at, um, yeah, Newcastle, and the midfielders training the SCG, you'd be going, gee, that's a bit strange. I don't know how, how do they how do they do that. So the answer should be always, what's best for the team? Yeah, what's best for our company? What works really well? It shouldn't be, well, I don't want to get in the car Monday because the traffic is, is too great. Um, and that's why, again, life balance, you know, whatever, what, again, whatever the Swans or Melbourne, our structure has dictated, that's what I need to do. But outside of that structure, 
I was free to do my, my own stuff. We had, you know, we had enough spare time. Um, that's that should be the way we we have the conversation. What do we want to stand for as a company? We want to be bang. We want to be professional. Bang, bang, bang. Whatever it is. Okay, around those parameters, guys. We're gonna have to have a meeting on a Friday afternoon in the office because that's what we've all now agreed to. No, hang on, hang on. And if that's not what you want to sign up to, that's okay. There'll be another company that says, yeah, look, we don't need to have a meeting at Friday afternoon. We probably want to have our meetings on Friday. My view is what is a high-performance team? It's a bit of the elephant in the room. Let's start having the conversation around what is best for the company and what is best for the team. And if that doesn't suit that individual, there'll be another company that has a different philosophy because they've got a different product or a different brand or they're in a different industry, you know. Yeah. That's, that's I, I all think, I'll, I, and I think just just the last comment, um, I think a lot of employers are worried because of the, the, you know, staff shortages, the talent shortages. So there's been a shift in terms of the balance of power between, you know, employees and, and employers. And so people are trying to toe that, that fine line. You know, look, I'm certainly a fan of flexibility. Uh, we, we have work from home, um, but we also have an office component. You know, for for our staff in Canberra. I mean, I'm going to the office next week, and I always try to make a, a visit to the office. And I think the other thing, I think the other thing around it is the connection piece. I think it'll be interesting to see where we get to in six months because I know a lot of companies we, the clients of ours, really miss the connection and couldn't wait to get back into the office. So I think there is part of it as well, being part of a team and collectively building something together. So I, I think we'll find a balance. Within the next six to twelve months, and, and that balance will be will be right. Hope so. Look, I'm a people person. You know, I like to be surrounded by people. That it motivates me, it inspires me. But when I feel connected to the people, it also means that I can go further. So for me, that's that's really important. Uh, Ruzi, it's it's been an awesome chat. Before we wrap up, I'd love to go through the fast five questions with you. Are you ready for this? Ready. Yep. Let's go. What was your first job, and why did you get it? My first job was with the AMP. I actually I went to Footscray Institute of Technology to study uh, uh, PE, but I, I finished school when I was young, so I didn't have a license. So I lived in Donvale. My dad drove me into the city to his TNG building. I work walked to Flinders Street Station. I caught a train from Flinders Street Station to um, Footscray Station. I walked from Footscray Station to the which grants you technology. I caught a taxi to training at Junction Oval, and I caught a taxi home from. So about three months in, I thought this is like this is. I've had enough of this. So <laughs> then I um, just applied for a job at the AMP, and I got it. So that was my first my first job at the AMP insurance company. What's something interesting that's not on your CV? Um, possibly people would know this, but I was. Uh, a state basketballer when I was um, – so I was actually probably a better basketballer than I was footballer. Um, I represented Victoria um, in the under – I can't remember if it was under 11s or 12s. We had every second every other year back then, but I think it was 13s, 15s and 17s. So I, I represented Victoria in basketball and it was when they only had one state team. So there was not Vic Metro and Vic Country, it was just Victoria. So I really – I loved my basketball and I actually played – a lot with Jamie Kennedy, who's Josh Kennedy, the West Coast Eagles player's father. So Jamie Kennedy was a really good basketball player, played for Canberra, a, a number of teams. So he and I played a lot against each other and a lot of state basketball together. And his son is a great champion of the West Coast Eagles. What have you learned about leadership and working on a team that you would want to teach your younger self? 
I think the role clarity is really important. Um, probably something I always say to people, if you could coach before you played sport, you mightn't be as good an individual player, but you'd be a much better team player. You know, you would, you would understand more what my role means to their role, what means to their role, was when you're a player, you probably prepare, even the most selfless players still prepare themselves yeah, Brett Kirk, who was probably one of the most selfless players, still his preparation was about himself and how do I get myself up. But he did have a great capacity. I think just understanding your role within the team, I wish I had a, had more of an understanding of that before I, I played AFL football. Can you provide a highlight from working in a trust team? I got a text message from Richard, this Richard Collis, uh, who was the, the chairman of the Sydney Swans when I when we won the premiership. And Richard texted me about oh, a couple of months ago and said, Rusey, congratulations. Um, you, you're going to be the first person inducted into two categories in the Sydney Swans Hall of Fame. And I really – it was a moment of reflection that I probably took for granted what an incredible group of people we had at the Sydney Swans. And I said that to Richard. I said – I texted him back. I said, mate, that's unbelievable. We, we probably took for granted what we were able to achieve at the Sydney Swans over a relatively short period of time. And that's probably the main thing. When you get a group of trusted people, just don't take it for granted. You know, really cherish it, embrace it, and to your point, celebrate the wins, celebrate them as much as you can because it, it is a, it's a real treat when it happens and you, and you can do special things together. What would you like your legacy to be? I, it's funny, I've been asked this a bit. It's probably how other people remember you, you know. I think I said this to a group of guys in a men's um, forum. Your, um, your legacy is about how you do things. Your resume is, is what you do, all right? Your resume is what you do. Your legacy is how you do it. And hopefully people would say, I've done it the right way. And I think that if I differentiate between yeah, your resume and what, what your achievements are, yeah, that's what you do. Yeah, so the 2005 premiership, which I'm really proud of, but that's on my resume. That, that's, that's an achievement. Your legacy is how you, how you do it, you know, and hopefully people remember me as doing it the, the right way. Well, certainly do. I mean, uh, a lot of me and my peers, we, we do remember it. It's a great journey. Hopefully... Uh, you know, they'll make a special doco as well. We can hear about it. But, Ruzi, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for joining us from abroad. It's been awesome having you on the show. Uh, I wish you the best. Yeah, thanks very much. Really enjoyed it. Great conversation and thank you very much for having me. Today's guest was Paul Ruse, founder and director of Performance by Design, a business management consultancy that builds high-performance cultures through proven systems and world-class coaching. We got some great insights into how Paul creates high-performing teams across both sports and business. Read his book, Here It Is, Coaching, Leadership and Life. And if you want to learn more about Performance by Design, you can check out the website and we'll link it in this podcast. Thanks for listening to the HR Think Tank with Kai No. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and share our podcast with your network. Check out the show notes for any resources mentioned in today's episode or visit the Verify Now website for more information.